0: All around the world there are groundwater shortages as farmers and urban centers deplete our groundwater. In California in the Central Valley, farmers have been draining out so much groundwater that the land has been sinking gradually over the last hundred years. Professor Helen Dalkey of the University of California Davis has been pioneering a plan in California to help the farmers replenish the groundwater. What they do is they guide the floodwaters from the wet season in winter onto farms and flood them, and then that water slowly sinks down to replete the groundwaters. Hi, Helen Dahlke. Thanks for coming on this podcast. I was wondering, maybe you could start out by sharing a little bit how you got into this process to recharge our aquifers and our groundwater. Thanks.
1: Um, Yeah. So how did I get started with this uh, managed aquifer recharge uh, research? Um, I'm actually a surface water hydrologist. So I've always worked in areas where we have rather plenty of water. So coming from Germany, I also did my PhD at Cornell, which is a rather humid, temperate climate. I've worked in northern Sweden Um, And then when I started my position here at UC Davis, uh, moving to a semi-arid climate, um, I spent more or less the first year learning just about all the water problems and and ongoing um, research that we have here in California. And groundwater overdraft was quickly a topic that Uh, was rising to the top, particularly when I started 2013, we were just in the second year of this extended four year drought. It turned out to be a four year drought and farmers were quickly realizing uh, surface water supply dwindled. Everyone was going towards groundwater. Um, And in 2014, the state legislature of California passed this um, new law, which is called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which uh, basically required um, more uh, conscious management of groundwater reserves, uh, meaning they had the plan to bring groundwater basins back into balance, so continued dropping groundwater levels or uh, loss of groundwater storage was not supported. And so everyone has now 20 years of time to hopefully find a way of how we can develop a sustainable uh, groundwater use that is not causing further depletion. And uh, a big portion of potentially becoming even is to intentionally put more water into groundwater aquifers. Um, because of the climate, again, that we have in California. It's a fairly flashy climate. So sometimes you have years with very little precipitation. But once in a while, we get these really wet years, like we had one in 2017, uh, where we almost got double the annual precipitation of what we typically get. And then we see major flooding. And flooding actually still is, is the more costly a uh, natural hazard that we have in the state of California. So there's multiple interests that are coming together, better manage flood flows when they are occurring, reduce damage from flooding, but then you know utilize that water that we see in those rare wet years um, to hopefully put that away and store it for dry periods when they come around again. So that is more or less the motivation behind um, this managed aquifer recharge research. And because California is so big, we're talking about huge amounts of water that we are using. Um, and you can't really use any of the traditional me- methods. There have been articles, I think, in the news, like c- capture more water out of the atmosphere. You know, basically collect the water vapor that's in the atmosphere. It would cost. Billions of dollars to do this with technology, you would have to run, you know, you would have to come up with the energy to even do this. So, we really can only use the water that we have available when it is available and figure out ways of how we better manage um, that water when it is available. And surface reservoirs, of course, have been uh, traditionally um, the go to method, you know, they are there to capture winter flows to protect us from downstream flooding. Um, but again, with climate change, uh, we're looking at more extreme precipitation events when they are occurring, which raises the question, are these reservoirs then actually even able to store all these um, you know, flood flows that are coming in? And um, at the same time, um, we have more drought years. We have higher water demand. so. There is more demand on on water overall. So you know, the, the storage we have in reservoirs is limited. It's finite and it, it typically doesn't really last more than two or three years if you're going into a drought period, as you can see right now in California. So longer term storage of water really can only happen if we put that water underground. And people should remember 97% of the fresh water that we have on land is actually stored in groundwater. It's not in surface reservoirs. So why not make use of that natural storage principle that you know, nature has been using for millions of years?
0: Mm. Cool, thanks uh, for the overview. So, so how much um, of, our, of California's water supply is from groundwater?
1: Yeah, it's on average. I think long-term average is around 40% um, if you look sort of at the last 100 years. Um, but it really varies regionally. So we have this, this rather drastic precipitation gradient across the state. Uh, in the northern part of California, where we are closer to Oregon, we get a lot more precipitation, typically somewhere between 20 and 40 inches a year. The southern part is really dry, desert-like, where you get maybe an inch or two sometimes, you know, in the Mojave Desert, Palm Springs. So uh, um, in those areas, um, communities and agriculture rely a lot more on groundwater and have basically used more groundwater on an annual basis than what has been replenished from precipitation um, naturally every year. So. For example, Bakersfield has a precipitation of around five to seven inches a year. Um, Now, if you're growing uh, a crop, almonds, pistachios, walnuts, you typically need 48 inches, 52 inches of of water to irrigate that crop. So do the number comparison, right? So if you only get seven inches in, and you assume all of that water actually goes into storage, into groundwater, you know, we're definitely taking more water out than, than what we're putting in. Uh, of course, not considering that some of the mountains we have on the east side, Sierra Nevada mountains get more precipitation and there is some water, of course, going into the valley from there. But um, yeah, in, in some communities you're looking at 60, 80 or even 100% uh, groundwater use um, because they don't really have any access to the surface water supplies.
0: How does um, rain become groundwater? How does it, where does it seeping in? Is there specific spots in, uh, in the area?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is uh, that is really the process that we can mimic so easily if we were to do this artificially. So precipitation, of course, you know, when it comes in, it covers, it typically falls over a very large area. Um, and then uh typically you do see that precipitation hit the ground surface, depending on what soil characteristics you have. So if it's more sandy soil, typically that precipitation has a very easy time to infiltrate into that soil. And once it's subsurface in the soil, there's a pretty good chance it will move deeper, You know, particularly in a flat area like the Central Valley. There's only one way to go and that is down. In the mountains, if you have precipitation falling onto hills that are rather steep, um, often we have also shallower soils on those hills. So meaning you have a little bit of soil and then there might be bedrock underneath. Um, Often that water then would infiltrate, but then move laterally downhill. And sometimes it goes through cracks towards groundwater, but often enough it resurfaces and um, might, you know, become runoff that then accumulates in rivers and creeks uh, that are taking that water down downhill. But for the most part, um, that would be the natural recharge process. Uh, in the Central Valley though, because we have so much irrigated agriculture, irrigation is actually also a large source of recharge to groundwater. Uh, particularly if you are um, irrigating crops with like flood irrigation, uh, meaning you kind of open a valve and, and, you know, fairly large amount of water is flowing out and it's like flowing sort of as a sheet of water over the, the surface of the field and then infiltrates. Uh, in those cases, you can have actually pretty uh, good amounts of, of that water also uh, moving outside of the root zone where plants might be able to take up that water and then it goes further down towards the groundwater.
0: So yeah, so you've been working with farms to kind of uh, help them recharge. So so is this a voluntary process that the farms ask you to do or you ask them or how does does this work to use the farms for recharging?
1: Yeah, so when I started with the research, um, I was actually contacting some of our University of California Cooperative Extension specialists. These are people that work for the university but are connected well to communities, they work with farmers or, you know, uh, residential uh, uh, people. And so I, I reached out to some of these uh, extension uh, uh, farm advisors, as we call them, and asked if they could help me connect to some farmers who might be willing to try this practice on their land. <laughs> and at the beginning, we saw a lot of uh, resistance or, you know, really just like Question marks from some farmers, but then we did find a couple um, farmers who were supportive of the uh, of that idea because uh, they have been seeing dropping water tables below their feet. You know that are dropping one or two feet per year, and they knew that this would be an unsustainable uh, trajectory. So. Um, they said, yeah, I think, you know, I can see how this is working. And if this is putting more water underground um, that I can then later use and pump out for irrigation, um, I'm happy to try this. And so we've worked with, um, for example, um, uh, Don Cameron, he's a general manager of Terranova Ranch um, in, in the Central Valley, Southeast of Fresno, and um, he has now actually really built out a large infrastructure system on his farm, at the cost of around twelve million dollars. So he can uh, pump flood water when it's available uh, onto his farm fields to let it infiltrate um, into the ground. And we're looking at several thousand um, so-called acre feet that we use as volume units. So it's an acre in area and then a foot of water height um, that you w- might be able to put on that field. So he's, you know, looking at at recharging 6, 10, 20 feet of water on, on an acre if he can, um, if water is available. And yeah, and we are looking for, of course, always occasions where we have really high infiltration rates. So this is a practice that doesn't necessarily work on on clay soils that uh, are fairly tight textured uh, where infiltration rates are very slow. Um, you can still do it on those soils, but it just you know doesn't yield as much recharge as let's say doing this on a nice sandy soil.
0: So if you do it on more clay soil, what happens to the water when you try to recharge it?
1: Yeah, it just like sits there on the surface, ponded, um, and you would just have to wait a fairly long time until it really goes into the soil. Um, we have rice fields here in the Central Valley where we actually have those um, fairly high clay content soils, and well, you can pond water, and you need ponded water for growing rice for that reason. So this is why we wouldn't necessarily pick those soils uh, as ideal recharge locations. But because of the uh, sedimentation history that we had here in in the Central Valley, so the Central Valley is basically a big bathtub filled with uh, different types of sediment. They're really ranging in grain size all the way from clay to sands and gravels, um, depending on how rivers have brought in these sediments and where they have been deposited. um, what we've seen is that particularly on these alluvial fans that are coming out from the Sierra Nevada mountains, like all the major tributaries that are coming from the mountains um, have been bringing in fairly coarse, uh, textured or coarse grained uh, sediments. So sometimes you find, you know, gravel pits are a good indication. While well, those are coarse sediments that have been deposited in those locations, And those would be great uh, sites to do recharge.
0: Um, So how does it work the whole recharge? So in the winter, is it when there's more rain that you guide the, you open the reservoir and you allow the water from the river to flow into the farm or how does it work exactly?
1: Yeah, so because of our climate, most of the rainfall falls in the winter months. So somewhere between November and May. And, that would be the time period that we would be interested in in doing the recharge. And you can use different sources. So you, uh, you could really just divert um, flood flows as they are occurring in rivers. And even though you have a river that has a reservoir on it, uh, typically even below the river without any reservoir releases, you would have water that is, you know, accumulating from the landscape. We could divert that water using existing, Surface water conveyance infrastructure like canals, ditches that we have already in the Central Valley to move irrigation water around during the growing season. So, using the same infrastructure in the winter would potentially allow us to move water from rivers or canals onto farmland to have it then infiltrate. Um, There are some water quality issues like sediment. So, often we actually don't like to take the uh, the water necessarily when we see a, a rise in stream flow because often you know uh, a higher stream flow means that often also a, a channel the flows are eroding sediment in the channel which could potentially you know clog your recharge site um but Right now, I think there's a large interest to really combine this practice with the surface reservoirs and look at reservoir reoperation, and basically let the reservoirs capture the flood flows and then make slow releases from the reservoirs to recharge sites um, that would then also allow us to release the water at the rate at which we can infiltrate it at the site.
0: So some of those natural winter flows, is that river just, where was that water to go if you don't flood the farms? Is it just naturally go back out to the ocean? Is that what happens to the water?
1: Yeah, typically if it's not stored or cannot be stored in the reservoir because they only have a limited so-called flood pool, as we call it, um, because the main purpose of the reservoir is to capture the water and store it for the summer season. But you never know how big a storm of uh, is coming in, how much flow you get from that. So sometimes you have to make releases. And then again, precipitation also falls on the land area below the reservoir. So we typically have um, we have actually flooding that can occur even in the center valley with reservoirs being there. And yeah, so either it's flooded, you know, land is flooded, particularly in the floodplains adjacent to major rivers. Um, some of it would infiltrate and, and go to groundwater recharge but the majority probably would just flow out to the ocean and so, we we definitely want to have some of that flow go out to the ocean because we need it for environmental flows for maintaining aquatic species in our, our rivers but um, sometimes we just get so much flow that you know diverting a little bit would definitely help.
0: Hmm. So would you say like compared to like California like 1800 or so like The water, the total water on California, on the, in the soil and in the groundwater, are we losing water to the ocean? Because it used to be that a lot more of that water would naturally go into the groundwater, but now a lot more flows out to the ocean. Is that true? true
1: That's a, that's a good question. Um, Because yeah, before we had reservoirs, all of these rivers would be flooding in the spring. or in the winter season when you had these rainfall events and then you often we also of course have big flows following the snow melt um so i mean you know the 1862 uh, famous flood event that california experienced uh, you know according to estimates about a quarter of the surface area of the central valley was underwater at that time and that would definitely induce quite a bit of groundwater recharge and you know, history has shown the water table was much closer to the surface at that time. Um, And we even had areas in the Central Valley where we had artesian uh, groundwater, uh, meaning it was under so much pressure that if you poked a a straw into the subsurface, water would be squirting out. Um, Unfortunately, all of that more or less has gone and water tables are so far below the land surface that even rivers are not connected to the groundwater any longer so yeah i would you know we still get some recharge from flooding rivers but the events are just so rare you know maybe once or twice every 10 years you get one of those years where you see major major flooding Um, so we definitely lost that recharge process but again we gained recharge from irrigating land and that number is a little bit fuzzy um, because we also see a change in irrigation technology happening. So uh, the so-called gravity methods of irrigation, where you just open a flood valve, well, you let the water flow over the land, it runs down a slight slope over your field, those are more and more going away because they're, you know, called inefficient. But the inefficiency is is the portion of the irrigation water that is going to groundwater. Um, And now with switching to drip irrigation, sprinkler irrigation, um, yes, you might reduce a little bit evaporation losses to the atmosphere by not wetting your soil surface. Uh, But the the water that the plant still needs for growing is, is not changing and is actually increasing because of climate warming. So to some respect, we are now reducing the amount of recharge that we get from irrigation. But I don't think we have a good idea of of how much.
0: Mm. Um, is that the farms use something called tile drainage, um, where the where they so when the soil gets too wet, they're just pulling out the water?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we have some areas, but not many in, in the Central Valley where we have that. So mainly around the Delta. Um, so the San Joaquin uh, Sacramento River Delta that you know, goes into the San Francisco Bay um, because of the high groundwater table. So this is where you know, ocean meets land. And so you often have a fairly high groundwater table to the land surface. So in those areas, we have to use drain tiles to remove some of the water from the root zone. But for the most part, the other areas, water table
0: typically is well below land surface and then uh someone like don cameron and other farmers who want to do this which kind of farms are okay like which farm if you flood the i mean if you flood like you're saying it's six feet high or something with water which kind of farms will destroy the crops and which ones are okay like are are all trees okay if you flood them that high or do some trees get damaged if you flood it that high
1: yeah, a lot of the research on that is still out outstanding. I would say uh, we we have to gather more data. But Don Cameron basically said, well, um, you know, I I don't really have so he doesn't have access to surface water as like an irrigation supply source. Um, he is not affiliated with a surface water district that would deliver water to him. He only pumps groundwater, so you know he has a large interest um, to to worry about his groundwater source because it's the only water source he has for irrigation. And so for him, it's really a rather question. Well, I rather want to capture this excess water when it comes around once or twice every 10 years and and make an economic loss during that year by potentially flooding every field that I have access to (laughs) and and putting the water underground. Um, He can take that loss in that one year. He can buffer that quite easily with the crop production he makes uh, from from the other years. But um, yes, he has flooded um, grapes, uh, wine grapes. He has flooded pistachios, alfalfa. Um, he did not see any damage to his wine grapes, which he flooded well into June when they were leafed out. So, uh, you know, not really something we would typically Uh, recommend doing. Um, A crop that is in active active growth usually needs oxygen in the root zone in order to take up nutrients and water. So, and this is always the risk you run when you flood um, a crop with water um, during the active growing season, because as soon as you put the water on and it goes into the root zone, it provides a barrier to oxygen exchange. Um, and so, once you have cut the root zone off from the from the air, microbes in the soil will start consuming the residual oxygen oxygen that you have. You reach anoxic conditions, and then you run the risk that these anoxic conditions are damaging the root system to the extent that the plant is no longer able to function.
0: Mm. And how long, if you flood it, say six feet high, how long does the water take to? To To infiltrate? Yeah.
1: Very much depends on the site. Um, So soil texture, but the soil is usually only, you know, soil surveys only look into the first five or six feet or so. But then we have other sediments deposited below. And we don't really have much information about exactly what the subsurface looks like. And again, you know, sediments have been deposited by rivers, you know, over thousands of years. Sometimes there might be a little bit of a clay layer in there, but that clay layer can have a big impact on the infiltration over, you know, like a whole section 10, 20 feet or so. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's often that we actually take soil cores at sites before we do flooding. Um, over the first 30 feet to at least have an idea of, you know, are there any surprises? (laughs) Are there any larger clay lenses in the subsurface that we need to worry about? Um, But because again, we don't have much information on the subsurface, the state actually now, Department of Water Resources um, has invested in these like airborne electromagnetic surveys. um, And then there's another technology, another geophysical technology Technology that can actually be towed over fields. And so more and more, um, we are actually collecting information on where we might be able to find these core sediments in the subsurface um, that would be ideal for you know, recharge locations.
0: And so uh, just to give a ballpark figure, so like on Don Cameron's um, farm, does it take within hours or days or weeks before the water? Uh, so-
1: Uh, His water table is very deep. Um, It's around 230 feet or so below land surface. So in the experiments that we have done, um, the amounts that we have applied um, wasn't even enough water to go down to the water table. Um, But he has, uh, I think um, in 2011 or so, he had a fairly large flood year where he could apply, I think he he applied like almost 4,000 acre feet or so. And I think they did see a response in in the water table, but that was weeks later. We've had other sites um, where the water table was only about 20 feet below land surface and it took about three to four days to reach the water table. So yeah, I don't think there's a universal answer. Um, it's It's all very site and location specific.
0: Cool. So when, when the water goes down in, on Cameron's land, does it, how big is the underwater basin and aquifer? Does it go spread out to a really wide area or does a lot of it stay underneath his land? Or yeah, how, how, where does the water go? And where is he too, by the way, exactly?
1: Um, he's located near Helm, California, which is in the San Joaquin Valley, almost near the, the center line of the valley so in the lowest uh, topography area. And that would be an area where you typically see groundwater flowing towards that location from from the rims, like from the edges of the basins or like f- from the edges of the Central Valley. Uh, we have um, the Central Valley alluvial aquifer is actually divided into several so-called groundwater sub-basins. Um, some of these basins are aligning with uh, the the watersheds, you know, of the rivers that are flowing on top of them, where typically the river is actually the groundwater basin divide. So because typically underneath a river, the water table would be going towards the river. And if we go further away from a river, we typically see the water table dropping often because we're pumping in those locations. So that's like where groundwater depressions are forming. And you know if the water table is lower over here and it's higher over here where we have the river flow, groundwater would be flowing from the higher elevation to the lower elevation. And those gradients, gradients in, in water table height um, are driving a lot how that water is actually moving. So let's say if I have, again, my river here, a groundwater depression here and I'm doing recharge over here, it would temporarily form a groundwater mound that would then over time flatten out. And then eventually water would be following the regional gradient, whatever flow direction it has in the region, and potentially move some of that water out, out of your recharge location. But that is a process that takes months and years. So often the assumption we make is well, if I'm recharging, let's say 2,000 acre feet in a month uh, over this location, if I pump out 2,000 acre feet in the following growing season, there is very little chance that this water or a, a substantial amount of wa- of that water that I recharged has already left the region. There are the small losses, 10, 15, 20% potentially, but for the for the most part, uh, we can, you know, from a water balance perspective, uh, say that we can account for that water under our feet that we just recharged three months ago.
0: So when Don floods his fields, so he's he he'll have water for his neighbors too, and then they'll actually flow into other regions too. So it should ha- it should be helpful for the neighboring yeah so like the farms
1: yes and that is uh why he is part now of a larger recharge effort in that region which is the um they are um the mcmullen uh, groundwater sustainability agency um, as it is called this is uh, one of these entities that was formed in response to the sustainable groundwater management act that was passed in 2014 so Overlying landowners had to form agencies that are now coming together to manage their groundwater basin. And so he, you know, he formed one of these agencies with uh, neighboring farmers and nearby uh, a nearby city, for example. And so I think they are covering over, you know, several thousand acres in land area, and they are now all coming together to invest into recharge programs. So. Not only his farm will receive flood water if there is any flood water, but you know other farmers too. And then um, everyone is is signing a memorandum of understanding that this is a shared resource and um, can be jointly used by all the overlying landowners.
0: And how, much, how many farmers in, or areas in Central Valley do we need to recharge in order to make a significant difference in the groundwater, would you say? Yeah,
1: that is um, that is a good question. So most of the overdraft is happening in the southern Central Valley, so the area roughly from the delta going down south to Bakersfield. Um, this is where we have the so-called 21 critically overla- overdrafted groundwater basins. Of the 160 million acre-feet of overdraft over the entire Central Valley, about 70% of that overdraft is in the Tulare Lake Basin which is the southern third of the uh, Central Valley. So in that area, we have an annual overdraft of a good two to 4 million acre feet a year based on historic data. And so based on some of the plans that have been submitted to address the overdraft, um, local entities are planning on addressing about 50% of that overdraft with recharge. We don't know if we have the surface water for that. Uh, climate seems to be changing rather rapidly in California. We, you know, just 10 years ago, we had a lot more precipitation than we have seen in the last 10 years. So it looks like we're g- going into an even drier period with less precipitation. So I think some of the estimates of how much, you know, excess flow there might be available to use for recharge are probably overestimates. But um, I would say time will tell, and I think um, land landowners really need to start thinking about fallowing. Fallowing is the only way of how you can really cut your overall water demand.
0: Uh, what's fallowing mean?
1: Fallowing means you just don't plant crops anymore on certain fields.
0: So um, if 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 Don uh, flood, you know, flooding his farm helps farmers in the region like why is his uh, why is this so controversial like why are there a lot of people upset about it
1: well because i think everyone is now looking at their imbalance in in the water budget so don cameron has has landowners that are upslope from him so somewhere between his locations and the mountains there's many other Water districts and and farms, of course, that also would like to have some water to stay in business. Um, so everyone is overdrafting a little bit. So everyone is now, of course, interested in closing the gap. And um, there are a couple of things that come together. So there are landowners and that are affiliated with so-called surface water districts. Um, that have been formed a long time ago. Some of them have been older than 100 years. And California has a water rights system that says particularly when you use surface water, uh, if you are the first one in time, you got you know one of the first water rights, uh, you have a lot more power in using surface water than you know folks that come in later. Um, let's say they might've gotten a water right in the 1960s. So whenever we don't have enough surface water, um, the state actually goes down the list and says, the youngest water rights holders do not get water first. And then we go down the list and eventually if there's really absolutely no surface water, even the oldest water rights holders would get no surface water allocation. So now imagine you already get your normal surface water supply cut because of climate change. Um, Now, of course, you're looking for other sources of water like these flood flows I've been talking about. And so everyone's applying for permits to get that water. But when you apply for that permit, there's a so-called open comment period where anyone can comment whether or not they have any objections to your application. And this is where it gets interesting. So there are interested parties that rather would like to see all the water go to their land that don't want to see necessarily a drop of water go to their neighbor and so it it is a little bit a political conundrum that we have to navigate um, in order to get these recharge projects implemented and unfortunately instead of just taking a you know sort of joint approach a community approach where we say we will all benefit if we, you know, recharge water, um, there is unfortunately some, you know, members that say, no, I want to hoard that water all for myself, and I don't want to share it with anyone.
0: Mm. So yeah, so it seems like it's important to build some kind of cooperation amongst everyone. Yeah, the social aspect to it, as well as a kind of yes, very aspect. much. Is it possible to recharge further up in the mountain so that the the people high upper slope can get watered? in the groundwater or that's harder higher up
1: yeah it definitely is a little bit higher up if you have slopes you know so i mean having a flat surface is just perfect to put the water on top and you know let it let it go uh, into the subsurface um the uh, the sierra nevada mountains um are definitely a big recharge area Uh, We we typically get recharge from, you know, snow-covered areas where you have a nice snowpack sitting on top, it melts at the bottom and water trickles into the ground. But overall, we actually don't really know much about how recharge is working in the mountains. And again, with climate change, we are unfortunately seeing some changes in those ecosystems that are not necessarily working in favor of recharge. So, Increasing temperatures have, for example, caused changes in vegetation in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So foothills typically dry out really quickly now. Barely You see barely vegetation surviving over the summer because it doesn't rain for months. And soil moisture storage is is, uh, quickly depleted going from spring into summer. Uh, But the rising temperatures also have the effect that you see more vegetation moving into higher elevations that are now all of a sudden needing water and they never did before. Um, At the same time, higher temperatures also mean more precipitation is falling as rain and not as snowpack or snow that actually stays on the surface for months and then it melts eventually. So, and that is again this like flashiness of the system that we need to manage. That is now all reliant on on surface reservoirs. When the reservoirs were built a hundred years ago, um, we had cooler temperatures, and about fifteen million acre feet of water were actually stored in the snowpack in the mountains. That was a big reservoir we didn't have to engineer. It was, you know, just nature helping out. And then when snow happens, you had that trickle flow going into reservoirs and then you could release it. Now with this shift to more precipitation and less snow, you get the runoff immediately and you have to figure out how am I going to manage all this flow that's coming down the mountain? Where am I going to put this? Where am I going to store this so I can use it later in the summer months? And because the you know, runoff is happening so quickly, so it rains and when we get these rainfall events, it rains for about two or three days and then it's over. So you don't have much time for that water to infiltrate into the soil to move, you know, to deeper groundwater, like mountain block recharge as we call it. So it mainly runs off on the surface, collects in reservoirs and rivers, and we don't quite know how to store it.
0: This would improving the soil, because if soil has more organic content, it can hold a lot more water. Is that something that's useful?
1: Yeah, definitely in agricultural soils, um, we're fairly carbon depleted. Um, That would definitely help with water holding capacity, probably help reducing irrigation amounts uh, during the growing season. Um, when it comes to our upland watersheds, I think man- managing vegetation is key. We just have too much forest in these watersheds. Uh, we haven't been thinning out our forests. Um, there's a lot of trees. There's now beetle infestations. There is too many wildfires. Whenever you have a wildfire going through, you you remove the vegetation that holds the soil in place, but you're also making typically because of the high temperature uh, fires we get, um, you make soils hydrophobic. Um, And once they're hydrophobic, they're having a hard time infiltrating any water. Um, So water that actually falls onto a a burn scar onto the soil is is repelled. It just sits on top and then flows again off instead of infiltrating into the soil. So there's a lot we actually need to do also in our upland watersheds to Uh, improve infiltration and reduce water demand so we can actually get more yield, water yield from those watersheds.
0: Have you heard of those techniques in regenerative agriculture and permaculture where they do earthworks, like put rocks to slow down the water and or do swales like dig ditches? Like
1: check dams and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, there have been, I think some examples there, we have these mountain meadows that kind of do this naturally. Um, so those are typically little sediment-filled um, depressions. Often they have a barrier at the outlet that sort of causes the ponding of the water behind it. Uh, beavers are more and more in discussion um, on being helpful along those lines because they, you know, built their own little dams. And um, that definitely helps with slowing down the water as it goes downhill and might re- induce more, more recharge in those areas too. Um, so yeah, there are you know some some methods like that that could be used.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I did a podcast uh, I don't know if you've heard of this research. I did a podcast with Francina Dominguez. She's a hydroclimatologist. She was looking at groundwater and, and rain. She was saying in her model, she found that the, tr- the vegetation would bring up the groundwater through its roots and actually would create more evapotranspiration, so that would create more rain downwind and so the groundwater is actually important part in all the plays a role in creating the rain and so um so possibly in in california as you deplete the groundwater it's actually going to affect the rain or i don't know if you've heard of that research along those lines
1: yeah not not that uh, specific study but yes in areas where you do have shallow groundwater um and we use that principle also for crop production um the Scott uh, River Valley in Northern California and Siskiyou County, for example, makes use of shallow groundwater uh, when they grow alfalfa, because alfalfa has very deep roots. It can go up to two meters uh, into the subsurface. So if some of those roots are tapping the shallow groundwater, you have to irrigate less because they are taking water, you know, from that from that groundwater table. Um, th- I'm not sure that I've seen necessarily estimates on, um, you know, uh, uh, crop water uptake of groundwater and then um, having a, a local climatological effect um, that might increase precipitation. But I think David Heineman um, has shown that the entire irrigated area that we have over the High Plains aquifer does have um implications for climate that is you know climate patterns that are moving towards the east so if you have a large irrigated area which is you know actively transpiring water you are increasing the moisture of the atmosphere over that area and that moisture of course is going to be you know moved somewhere else and then might fall as precipitation so um there have been reports i think for california we're really on the other end of the spectrum uh we just didn't really have enough precipitation in the last couple of years. So soil moisture storage is very much depleted and even moisture in our natural vegetation is, is um, at really historically low levels. I don't think we have seen such dry vegetation in, in over hundred years or even ever. And that is really, you know, the risk now for wildfires. Vegetation is bone dry. You just have to light a match and it will all Mm. start burning. So there's no more natural resistance to some of these, um, you know, wildfire risks just because um, biomass is so dry.
0: Yeah. One of the ways that it could possibly keep more moist is if we did have more groundwater, right? Have you heard of something called hydraulic redistribution where the Tree roots are bringing up the groundwater and kind of hydrating the whole environment. So, yeah,
1: but you still need a somewhat shallow enough uh, water table in order to have that gradient happen. So, I mean, again, in Central Valley, if your water table is 200 feet below land surface, no uh, active section of a plant will bring that water table up.
0: <laughs> well, you, and you, you said like in the 1800s or something, we had groundwater tables that were so shallow that there was artesian things so yeah was that possibly back then that the fires were a lot less because there was a lot more groundwater accessible for the vegetation possibly
1: yeah that could probably be although you know fire is part of our system so um, and if you ask you know the, some of the uh, uh, tribal communities that have been living in this in this space before settlers came in um, they will report that you know fires have are a, a natural process that is also helping with the thinning um, of the forest and ecosystem. So um, you know I think it it just needs to be a combination of of many things like not just let's say you know restoring the water table is not easy. We would need a major surplus in water in order to make this happen. And I'm not sure that we have that surplus at the moment.
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of fires, like I think there is a difference between cool fires and hot fires, right? The hot fires actually create this hydrophobic soil. So if the land was more hydrated, perhaps you'd have more cooler fires. So you wouldn't have this problem with the soils turning hydrophobic.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, this is what they are trying to do with the controlled fires. So if you, if you do controlled burning um, in, you know, selected seasons where you definitely know, you know, there will be rain coming in about two weeks or so, um, then your risk of having this fire get out of control um, would be much lower. And these like um, controlled burning events, uh, typically, you are just interested in burning the ground vegetation, like grasses, bushes, you know, near the ground surface, but all the tall trees. Um, that are making up the forest for example would be uh, you know would would be untouched in the process so now with these hot fires i mean they are creating their own um, you know uh, fire tornadoes for example you're burning everything it's yeah it's just a complete loss and then that of course will affect the, the recovery of the ecosystem so Um, Yes, some species need fire in order to, you know, open, for example, the seed pods um, that will release the seeds uh, for the next generation, but um, often, you know, what we want is like having a couple mature trees left that can then, you know, drop seeds and then from that you would get regrowth and if you have a complete destruction um, of your vegetation ecosystem, then you, you have to actually go in and replant, for example, manually.
0: Mm. And you say that, uh, well, with the rainfall and the droughts right now, like it seems like the, the rainfall is coming in more big bursts, right? I think in California, like the atmospheric rivers, the big rainfalls account for almost half of California's water. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So, so is there a way to capture, like, is that is that half of that, when those big rains come, is that all stored in the reservoir? Does it, a lot of it leak out to the ocean or what happens when those big rains come usually?
1: Yeah, when these big atmospheric rivers come, um, um, first of all, they are not typically covering the entire state. When that happens, they are fairly narrow bands, they're around four or five hundred kilometers wide. So then you, you know, one might hit Northern California or Southern California, and you do get quite a bit of precipitation. We had one last year in October, which was a category five atmospheric river, which is the highest category, meaning, you know, high winds and um, lots of precipitation. I think the coast range in some areas got 16 inches of precipitation in one day, which is a lot of water you know, 16 inches, that's a one and almost one and a half feet of water. And that will immediately cause flooding and you barely have any really chance to capture that water. I mean, again, remember that most of the reservoirs are in the Sierra Nevada, Sierra, we don't have many in the Coast Range, for example. So for those areas, rainfall becomes runoff, it goes out to the ocean, there's not much you can do to, to hold it back.
0: I mean, is that a good idea for us to somehow, Is it or is it even possible to reclaim some of our floodplains or something so that we have these more natural, wet, like it used to be, so that we could capture the atmospheric rivers when they come?
1: Yeah, that's definitely a good idea. And some areas have thought about putting um, or like setting these levees back to open the river to a larger floodplain, which would allow, you know, you know, the river to, to spread the flood wave, to spread over large area, which typically helps capping the keep the peak. So instead of getting a very steep, you know, hydrograph, you, you basically reduce the peak flow and you spread out your flood wave, which helps with, you know, downstream areas not hopefully being overwhelmed by that flood water. It also creates more groundwater recharge. It creates habitat for aquatic species that need to, Need access to the floodplain for spawning, for you know food, etc. So there are many ecological benefits that um, opening up the floodplain would definitely provide. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out how and where it is
0: safe to do so. Right, and yeah, I mean, and yeah, so if it helps with the floods and it helps with groundwater, and maybe it helps with, I mean, if it creates more evapotranspiration, maybe more rain. And maybe if it helps with the fires, I think um, maybe some research needs to be done on that. Like if you create more water stored in these wetlands, maybe that you have more humid winds and um, like because there is a big problem in California right now, the huge fires. that And like if we could somehow retain more water on the continent, maybe that would help with fighting the fires.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I think the benefits of wetlands, um, I think uh, Hurricane Ian, there was an area that was flooded by Hurricane Ian and they had actually put quite a bit of effort into restoring the coastal wetland um, surrounding the community. And I think now there's reports coming out that um, they you know, had, had very little damage to the community. They didn't have flooding and the coastal wetland did what it's supposed to be doing, uh, buffering. <laughs> you know, against against the ocean. So that is exactly, you know, the the function or the benefits that some of these ecosystems provide, we just keep forgetting about them. And we, we just sometimes love to engineer our way in and out of everything. And, you know, it's maybe not recommended to always uh, go to an engineering approach, but perhaps watch and listen to what nature has done in the past and maybe restore some of those functionalities because you know they worked in that in that space in that particular location.
0: Yeah, I think there's a movement now called nature-based solutions and uh, and it's also work I mean there's a whole complexity and systems thinking movement too and I think water is actually you know it's so multidimensional and like the way we normally do it with the levees and the dams and all these man-made things we don't understand the full complexity of the water cycle so we're not and so I think as we begin to understand how it all ties together maybe we'll start seeing that it's actually a better solution to use some of these natural solutions yeah maybe maybe the civil engineering I mean all the people that go into hydrology maybe they could yeah I, I think you know in some of the hydrology and civil engineering it's a lot focused on I guess what they call gray infrastructure maybe they could learn how the Green infrastructure, the nature based solutions can work too, would be helpful.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, um any civil engineer that's going into a civil engineering program, maybe you want to take a couple of classes in ecology, biology, geomorphology, or maybe just like some hydrologic sciences classes, not hydrologic engineering classes. Um, I think we can learn a lot. Um from, from just looking a little bit at our neighboring disciplines and see, you know, or learn about, okay, how is the system actually working without humans being present? Um, because that's often you know how we get how we started and then we, you know humans have changed the system and then um, changed it not necessarily always in the, in the way that, you know, nature supported in the beginning. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot to learn by taking a multidisciplinary approach.
0: And so how does it work for someone in academia like you? Like, are you, are you, are there people, do you see movements that bridging the people who are working in kind of your area that's seeing the nature things bridging with the civil engineers, or is there that kind of movement happening right now?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, Um, not sure necessarily, you know, particularly with engineers, but, Uh, in our program, for example, we do work a lot with the engineers in the California Department of Water Resources. So that is a a state agency that is tasked with managing water resources in the state. Um, And they collaborate quite a bit with various researchers, climatologists, um, geomorphologists, like you know, uh, even fish biologists to understand, for example, what is it that a fish need in a river, needs in a river? So what do we need to change in in how we manage our reservoirs, for example, to mimic flows in the downstream channel that um, are, you know, providing adequate habitat for certain fish species that we have in those rivers? So I think there's definitely... Uh, a lot of learning there's also a growing interest in in uh incorporating uh, tribal knowledge um because again uh, some of these uh, tribes have had you know century long experience in managing or like living in in harmony with these ecosystems and um it's it's not always you know the the modern way that we apply right now that is potentially the, the best one to use
0: so there is some recognition in, in, in academia that the, some of the indigenous ways are good yeah and is california generally more progressive than other states and or other countries or is it lagging behind or how would it compare would you say
1: yeah it's <laughs> that's a good question i think there's always room to learn um there's definitely some things i think we we're pretty good at um in terms of water management um i think we you know we have one of the most sophisticated infrastructure systems in the world to move water over several hundreds of miles from northern California all the way to Los Angeles. Um, but you know some of that infrastructure is, is crumbling now and is not necessarily fit to to manage. You know some of the changes that we have in in climate. Um, And there's things we can learn from our neighboring states. So I was just coming back from a conference on groundwater sustainability and, um, for example, our neighborings, well, not necessarily neighboring, but one of the states in the United States, Kansas, um, has been monitoring groundwater pumping since the 1990s. We don't do that in California. Uh, But Yet having that information would actually help a lot with managing groundwater. So right now uh, we have given sort of restrictions or guidelines on, okay, this is where you need to go in terms of groundwater use over the next 20 years. But we're not really, you know, measuring the pulse. We're measuring it indirectly by monitoring groundwater levels, but we could take a much more, you know, aggressive or forward-thinking approach. I mean, it's it's about accountability. There is always going to be people that will not comply. <laughs> um, and they they go uncovered right now, right? So and then other people will have to make up for their water use. Um, because you know in the end, every overlying landowner over a groundwater basin If they don't meet the milestones, if they don't go to where they need get to where they need to go, will be penalized in some way. So um, yeah, I I think that was interesting to know. Also, state of Nebraska, for example, has an interesting groundwater market going on. California is um, in the process of developing groundwater markets, but we still, you know, try to figure out how all of this could work, how it is going to be equitable how uh, we can avoid you know, misuse of, of, of marketing principles or groundwater trading principles. And so I think sometimes we need to look beyond our borders and learn from others.
0: Hmm. And do you have any, any insights in some of other, other countries too? Like Australia and Pakistan just recently both had huge floods this year. Like would some of these nature-based solutions have helped there? Like allowing the floodplains to capture the water and would it also restore the groundwater in those places?
1: Well, I would say Pakistan is not a very engineered state. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their carbon uh, dioxide or greenhouse gas emission contributions to the world, it's minuscule compared to what China and the US is putting out every year. So unfortunately, Pakistan is an example that has uh, been hit hard by climate change. Um, basically, it's bad luck for them um and not sure that you know groundwater recharge or any of the the methods we're using here in california would have necessarily helped them the amount of precipitation that they received within a short period of time and the stream flow plus you know some of the snow melt glacier melt that's happening in the higher mountains surrounding that that um you know low plain area that was flooded and i think Quarter or so of that of that um, area was was underwater for several weeks. You know, um, that is not something we can prepare for, and this is exactly the risk that we're running more and more into with climate change. This like uh, again, acceleration of the hydrologic cycle. Sometimes you have areas that never will see a drop of water again. And then there's areas that will see multiple rainfall events at like Kentucky. I think we had like three 1,000 year events this year in Kentucky, 1,000 year. That means a return period of an event of such a magnitude that should on average only happen once every 1,000 years. So um, um, I, I think people need to learn that you know these these events, Are all related to climate, like what we do with our climate, with the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions, and we need to cut down on those if we want to potentially bring uh, patterns back into, you know, into boundaries of where they were fifty, hundred years ago.
0: Right. Yeah. And and in those areas where they are getting a lot of rainfall and they have a groundwater depletion, maybe there's there's ways kind of guide some of the excess water into the groundwater like if we
1: yeah I mean again groundwater is it's it's a slow system it's not as fast moving or responsive as our surface water system so I mean when it rains a river will swell you'll see an increase in flow and then eventually will subside again um groundwater is is not working at that time scale you can easily fit a flood wave into a groundwater system unless you have, you know, huge areas of gravel that can take and absorb that water. So um this is the mismatch in time scale. And unfortunately again with climate change, these events are going to become these flood events are going to become um more um like higher, more intense in, in magnitude, meaning even more water in a in a unit of time. And um that's that's becoming. That's gonna make it even more difficult to manage that. So yes, you will see more flooding. Um, some of that water definitely will go into groundwater. Um, we can see if we can manage these flood flows with reservoirs, hold them back and then release them so we can put more groundwater underground. But um, often you want to have controlled flooding to really um, facilitate good groundwater recharge. And I'm not sure we're going to get controlled flooding <laughs> right.
0: in some I mean, if, areas. <laughs> I mean, if we set aside more of our floodplains so that there's more natural wetlands too, maybe that's a solution. Like,
1: Yeah, but then, you know, um, rivers, coastal areas are prime, prime areas for, you know, urban development. I mean, everyone wants to have a river view. Uh, everyone... <laughs> likes to be next to a river because you know we've used traditionally the water for drinking water supply or navigation or whatever it is so um a lot would have to also change to really free those lands you know which often means like either you have to buy it back which is expensive or um yeah we will you know we'll have to think about how how we want to live with nature
0: yeah i guess yeah it's a difficult thing to kind of return those lands but the problem is getting bigger and bigger. Like I think in the Netherlands, they did decide to buy back land and turn it into floodplains, and in China too, because the sponge cities, because the floods were just getting too big, so they moved people from the floodplains so that the mm-hmm. floodplains could absorb the floods. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess it's a, it's it's difficult because <laughs> we want to live near the rivers and stuff. Um. Um, cool so what's the what's on the horizon for you like what's your next steps in your research and progress
1: yeah we we have several uh, research sites underway where we are studying in more detail um, you know some of the processes so for example flooding farm fields with with excess water you know you put typically fertilizer on farm fields if you want to grow crops so there is risk of nitrate leaching, for example, to groundwater, which is not something we would like to see in groundwater if we use that water as a, as a drinking water supply. Um, but we are also working on larger picture questions. So for example, you know, how can we um, convince uh, more stakeholders here to actually buy into this uh, on-form recharge program uh, I'm working with uh, researchers from other states to see if this is also a technology we can apply in other states of the United States or even abroad. Um, Israel, for example. We have a research collaboration going on. Um, so there's, you know, I think the fact that groundwater reserves are increasingly de- depleted, no matter where you look in the world. The United States is not the only country who has that issue. Australia, Europe, um, um, Africa, you know, Middle East, all of India, big issues with groundwater overdraft. Um, all of these regions could probably benefit from more research on how we can intentionally put more water into groundwater aquifers So we are trying to basically work with with other researchers in that space um, to see how we can make that happen.
0: Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing that work. And uh, yeah, thank you also for this interview. Really appreciate all your insights. Thank you. Cool. Thank you.